Hello and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast, show 12. With me tonight is Ian. Hello. And Mac. Hey, how you doing tonight? And Jennifer is taking the night off. We're getting ready to go camping and so she is, uh, she's got stuff to do. So how are you guys doing tonight? Oh, not too bad. It's been a long day at work for me. Has it? But that was because I gave up uh, time yesterday to go see the, the FDO, Scott Sigler, with yep, you guys. He was in town. I'm doing good. I'm actually on a week off and so family. It's been fun. I'm in the middle of changing jobs. That hasn't been fun. So, all right. So we've got a we got a couple of stories tonight. We're gonna um, try and make the, make it a little shorter than normal. Well, we've got some feedback that we want to talk about, and then we're gonna have our Skepticam presentation that we're gonna add into this episode. So let's go ahead and get started with uh, some multicellular life. And okay. the phone rings. <laughs> what timing? We're such yeah. professionals. Take the call live. And <laughs> yeah, Sarah gets to deal with it. Okay, so. Uh, apparently, have a really um, impressive discovery. Uh, multicellular life forms from over a billion years ago. Now, this is big because originally, from what we've seen in our fossil record, um, the first complex life forms that um, had been found, the earliest, had been dated around 600 million. So to suddenly jump from 600 million to 2 billion is a huge, huge deal. And, you know, to be able to look at these things and say, oh, wow, you know, there was some complex things existing that far back is pretty impressive. And um, it, it definitely changes a lot of our ideas of evolution. You know, the whole timeline gets altered. And in some ways, this actually helps because by having, you know, by finding these things that, oh, wow, they were back that far, that gives a huge difference in um, how much time things were able to evolve um, up until the point of the Cambian explosion, which is a huge event, which considered, you know, the majority, well, not really the majority, but there was a huge surge in suddenly the variety of life at that point. And it's always been kind of a, you know, looking at like, wow, to go from simple single cell stuff to the, the various examples we have from the Cambian age is, you know, was always rather overwhelming. But now to have this puzzle piece shoved in there and say, oh, okay, that fits actually pretty well. And that, that helps make a bridge between what we knew and, you know, where we are now. So uh, another really impressive bridge has been built and a gap filled in within the evolution, uh, within the patterns of evolution. And that definitely makes a difference. It helps science out big time. Have you have you seen this anywhere else? I mean, has um, has uh, have you seen like uh, Ferengula or any of the other, um, you know, biologists come out and talk about this yet? Have they, uh, is there anything on their no. blogs about this? Um, no, it's, you look at the date on this, it's only been out about a week. So, um, you know, it's just starting to get out there. My guess is, um, you know, you'll be seeing this more and more because so something this big is definitely going to get a lot of attention. Yeah, it'll be interesting to, when, when some other biologists are looking at the data and start talking about it and give us a, a little bit better picture of where this might fit in and yeah. what exactly it means. I mean, because the article, you know, it makes some effort to do that. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting just to see exactly where it fits in and how it... I mean, because it certainly makes the uh, Precambrian look uh, much more plausible. Yeah. Oh, and that, that's the main thing. That that definitely helps kill some of the creationist arguments who look at it and say, oh, you know, suddenly in the, um, with the Cambrian explosion, you had all this new life. Obviously, it couldn't have just come from the, you know, uh, out of nowhere the way 
So, you know, so maybe it, they it, were right. Their <laughs> maybe maybe they were right. When now we have the evidence. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing. That's... I've got a slightly different take on this. Okay. I'm not uh, I'm not disagreeing with the evolutionary significance of this, but uh, the part of the article where they're talking about how there was a temporary increase in oxygen, which dropped about 1.9 million beers ago. Basically, I'm wondering if this was this would have been a different evolutionary path. It's like the road's not taken. What would have happened to the Earth if this had been the dominant life form and it evolved instead of us? Well, those questions come up at any period within... Well, they, they know, came up now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, at some point, we weren't the dominant life. Oh, I know that. That's very true. But it's just it was just an interesting ponderance to me. I'm like, what if this had been what happened instead? Well, obviously, we wouldn't be discussing it, but... <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. I don't know. Yeah, but that'd be the hard thing to tell within any given um, period of time. You know, what species actually did survive to evolve on. You know, to you can't tell really whether or not the species survived at any given era. Um, well, we can trace some we, lines. I mean, we, yeah. you know, uh, osteopods, osteopods, and you know, some of some of these other dinosaur lineages we we've been able to trace. You know, and we know where birds are birds came from. I mean, so. And, and that you know, that evidence becomes stronger and stronger. So you, you can tell. It's just harder when you go back that far to, yeah. to put those pieces together. It's just more difficult. It doesn't mean that right. we can't come to some logical conclusions right. based on the and evidence then, given. And Max, right, there's a logic saying we don't know for a fact that these are what evolved into everything else. These well, could have yeah. been a brief life form that did evolve and get wiped out. Out. But just the fact that life did evolve to this point, you know, one and a half billion years earlier than thought is amazing. Well, I mean, we so we know we, we know it's multi um, multi celled, but we don't know that it was DNA based or, right. or RNA based. What if it was something totally different? I mean, that would be really cool. And that's one of the great things about this. You know, a discovery like this can lead to all sorts of possibilities. And, you know, and, and then, of course, I, I, they're talking about the technology to look at these. They don't need to break them apart and destroy them. They can actually scan them and learn tons about them. Right. It's like, cool. You know, it, it, the technology's come to a point where we can learn so much without having to really ruin the evidence. And that definitely helps preserve it and makes it, you know, that much, you know, more important to find good, healthy fossils. Right. No, no, it is. And particularly when they can date them back this far. But the thing that's nice about this is that if we found one, there's there's probably another. Yeah, well, they found a whole batch. That's the thing. This is 250. Okay. Well, if they found one, there's got to be other life forms. Too. Well, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, that, that that's there's the other, other multi-cell life forms. Because it had to be an ecosystem if it lasted that long. You would think. I mean, that, that stands to reason. Okay, good. So, yeah. Do you think they had a Swiss Army knife? I think that probably came a little later. You do? <laughs> How much later? Oh, about 200 A.D. Hmm. Good segue. Thanks. <laughs> so I found this article this week, which I thought was just absolutely great. It's the world's oldest Swiss Army knife. And it was found in the Mediterranean. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm very sorry about that. It was found in the Mediterranean, and it dates to about 200 A.D. This thing has got a fork. It's got a spoon. It's got a knife blade. It's got a spike. And some of the comments on the site are absolutely great. Talking about uh, talking about uh, time travelers, like, oh, that's where I dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> some of the some of the uh, some of the comments were great. But this is in let's see, currently located in the uh, currently located in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, England. But it's got a spoon, a knife blade, a fork, a spatula, a toothpick, a spike of undeterminate use. <clears throat> And 
It's beautifully it's, made. It is. That's the I, thing. You look at it. It's just wow. And it's just amazing that we found this one. I it's have the feeling. Such condition, also. You look at that picture. That you know. The only part of it that's damaged is the knife. Right. The knife blade is pretty much rusted away. But I look at this and I think this was not. Some of the people were talking about. Uh, so the people were talking about how it was a production item, and I'm sitting here going, no, I think this was some of these handmade tool that we just happened to find this one. There's really no way to know, because this is the only example of it. <laughs> I'm reading the comments. Hot buttered toast. How barbarian. No sport. No wonder their empire collapsed. <laughs> All that, and look at that Claudius. What a prick. Every time you need to dig the eyes out of somebody's skull, he shows up with that damn knife. Hey, here's this. If this has 20 functions, let me help you out. <laughs> Flash bastard. <laughs> it does look neat, though, doesn't it? I mean, it, it does. I, I carry it. Yeah, it, yeah, it looks good. All right. You guys ready to talk about aliens? Uh, I'm sure you're ready. I am way ready. You know, these, yeah. yeah. Let me toss one final comment from the side in there on on the Swiss Army knife, or the Roman Army knife. This person posted, the Roman Empire was named after the city of, the microstate of Vatican City is entirely contained within Rome. The Pope is the head of the state of Vatican City. The Swiss guards protect the Pope, and they are drawn from the Swiss military. The Swiss Army brand makes multifunction knives. It's all connected people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to give a little background on why we, I specifically hunted this down this and we're definitely covering you know, our next little bit. Uh, basically, um, as some of you know, and we'll get more intel on this out after um, at the end of the program, me, Brian, and Jen were at Skeptic Camp, uh, what, a week and a half ago. Yeah. And we were talking with, who were they? Brian and Baxter. Um, Brian and Baxter. And they had said the Sam Romanek video was out there. Right, and, and I hadn't so, seen it yet. Yeah, so I specifically hunted down to find the actual video and um, went to his site, and this is the video he right. had posted up there. I then went and found it on the YouTube because that was easier to, to go to his site. And so this is the authentic, real video Stan Romanek uses to claim that he has videotaped an alien and that we need to... Right. Um, and we should say, you know, Brian and Baxter are from the um, Mile High Paranormal Research what are they? Right. Um, foundation or whatever. I'm not sure. Um, but Mile High Paranormal Re- the Research. And th- when they heard about this this video and that um, it was going to be released, they came up with a fake, which is all over the internet. Right. That looks better than than this oh, one. Oh yeah, by far. And and um, it was actually interesting to talk to them because um, they did a presentation. They did a presentation at Skeptic Camp. And they opened up talking about um, how they go about breaking down any evidence given to them. And they, they automatically not ever, ever, ever start by saying it's natural. In fact, um, what they said, they've never actually written anything off as because to get to that point, you have to go through quite a bit of um, proving well, and you, disproving. Well, you have to start at the most likely thing, and they say, right. okay, it can't be that. So then you go to the next most likely thing, and the next, and the next, and the next. And they get to a point where they stop and say, okay, that's the stuff that's likely. That's all we can think of, and we're not going to go any further. Because because what would be, need, be needed to prove that anything is supernatural would be, you know, it would be astronomical. I mean, it, it would right. be very difficult to prove that. And so at some point, they, they stop, and, and they actually submitted that stuff basically to the audience and said, hey, you know, what do you guys think? You know, they, they put their stuff on the chopping block, which, you know, was pretty good. Yeah, and so it, it was quite impressive. So, you know... Th- 
we definitely um you know believe in that kind of stuff as well you start looking at anything and you look at what's most obvious first and say is that what's going on here and this video to me is one of those perfect examples something to look at and you break down fairly easy and say okay what is the most likely thing we're watching and i think everyone here agrees that we're most most likely watching a very very staged video yeah, it, you know, it, it's it, you know, it's difficult to say that, you know, but it just does it not. So staged. Yeah, it does feel staged. It has the feel of something staged. But um, after watching the video, I I looked at the alien in there, and it's very clearly in Asgard. And I don't think <laughs> Asgards are generally peepers. <laughs> now they are new. Plus, plus well. he would have teleported out, not run away. Now I think the head looked a bit too big and flat, guard. Their, their, their heads are more egg-shaped. Well, Shout out saw, to any Stargate fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> what I saw in the video was much more rounded, almost like a happy face shape. I, I have no idea what's in that video. There's something there, right? Yeah, but, but, well, from the get-go, I, I, you know, I'm, I've done video work. I have a degree in film video technology. No one in their right mind is going to turn on their video camera and start filming while they're setting up tripod to position their camera to film. So the he wanted only, to be on film. The only, no, the only reason to do that is to show on film that you're setting up a camera. Right, that's what I'm saying. He wanted to be on film, to be seen to be setting up the camera perfectly casually to catch the peeper, the peeper who was showing up at his window, and oh my gosh, he caught an alien. Who would right. have expected that? And in anyone I know of who's even a casual videotaper, you know, playing around with it, they don't turn the stupid thing on when they're setting up. That's the dumbest thing you can do. If you put, you know, who does that? So, you know, right from the get-go, there's a feeling like, wait a minute, something's not right about this video. The other thing is, if this alien's been peeping at him for that amount of time, and he hasn't been probed yet. No, he's been probed. Oh, he's been probed. Oh, yeah, he, he's, yeah, been, he's been probed. well before this, according oh, to Oh, yeah, him. yeah. I, I, oh. I found something online. Well, they were just checking on their investment then. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's he claims that he's found you know stuff in his skin that people can't explain and some stuff like that. Well, actually, so. this was stuff that um, was on his hands and stuff that if you put black light over it, it glows. And my, my main suggestion for him with that is I'm not going to say a thing. I'm not going to say a thing. Because I know what glows under black light. <laughs> I, I know I, where it comes from. <laughs> I, I've heard stories. I, I don't know firsthand myself. I've heard stories. Okay, I'm going to say this about that. Was he peeping or was the alien? <laughs> oh. This one's deteriorating already. Yeah, yeah. Is, they were but anyways, then if you watch through the video, we have that nice little flash of light that I think is supposed to be showing he cut it because so much time had passed. Right. And looks, then, like he, looks like he stopped it and restarted the tape. Then we have the um, face appear. There's definitely a face there. I don't know if there's anything else. There's definitely a face that appears, looks in the window, moves away, comes back, then moves away as he somehow, because he's supposed to be upstairs sleeping at this time, because it's his story. And somehow, you know, while the alien's there, he knows to come down and chase it off. And he's also a bad act. He went to the window. I didn't quite buy that he, he was He said, what the? What's yeah. that? So... <laughs> No, that it, you know, if if he, he really wanted bed. to show a timeline, wouldn't he have you know put the clock on there so we could have seen it running? I mean, you, people, you can do well, that. And if he cut it, he's he's doctored the the evidence already. Right. Well, no, if he put a clock, that would make it harder for him to have done the cut to make it look like time passed. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I'm saying yeah. that the fact that he did cut the video means that he's already doctored the evidence. Right there. Um, he's already he's already perverted what he was trying to accomplish. Because yeah. we also don't know what happened in between the time he started recording and the time the face showed up. So, yeah, you know, I mean, right, you're right. Right there, the evidence is, is doctored, doesn't show us everything. 
But then um, what was on his site and some of the claims he's made about how all these um, video experts have looked at and said, oh, it costs thousands and thousands of dollars to make that effect. Uh, besides the fact that... Um, how good are your kids with paper, mache? Well, yeah. well see what... Brian and Baxter, how much did they spend for that? $95. Yeah. And that and theirs was far better and re- more realistic looking than what I saw. <laughs> You know, you, the alien was um, fuzzy. You couldn't make out any details, and all it did was blink. These big black eyes blinked. I can't see that being effect to a copy. No. I, you, know, you could probably do it out of paper mache. So You could you do know, it out of paper mache, or you could, uh, you could add a 3D effect in, and it's becoming easier and easier with a computer to add items into what well, you can do it with like Adobe Illustrator, I think, right? Add something into a, add something into a video clip. Yeah, so now th- this, I, I can't believe this is being taken as any kind of serious evidence. Well, and it's not, I mean, I don't think, I don't think for most people it is. Right. And apparently this, this hyper advanced alien who traveled here from thousands of light years away or millions of light years, apparently he wasn't able to determine that this was a video camera. <laughs> He's sitting here going, oh, what is that? Yeah. Huh. Wow, that's really interesting. I wonder why that red light keeps blinking on it. <laughs> Maybe this is the dominant life form of this planet. <laughs> yeah, I'm not thinking that's the case. Well, yeah. it's, we should, it's call on, time to call CSI and see if they can figure it out. <laughs> I think they can. And see if they can figure out what's all over Stan Romanek's hands. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm going to cringe about that one. These sheets must look like a Rorschach test. So, <laughs> so CSI. Fact, fact versus fiction. fiction. So what is uh, so? What, what are we looking at here? Uh, basically, um, some actual forensic technicians talked about what parts of CSI are realistic and what part the... Uh, they're talking, it looks like, mainly about CSI Miami. Not about the original CSI, but they're all pretty much the same. Right. Just depends on what location they're in. You know, CSI Original Flavor, which is in Las Vegas. CSI Extra Crispy, which is in Miami. And uh, CSI New York, because I can't, can't think of a... <laughs> um, anyway, but they were saying, they're saying which parts are realistic and which part the show's producers just let a David Caruso kind of ad lib. Um... <clears throat> The person who wrote the article said he was just kind of bummed there's no statistical breakdown on the dramatic use of sunglasses. Uh, I think the statistic (laughs) among actual CSI cops would have been negligible. So anyway, they're talking about the fact, um, how long does it take DNA processing samples to take place? Real life, a few weeks to several months. On CSI, 33 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And the the person who was writing the article was talking, or the person who actually came up with the statistics says that since CSI shows have come out, they have actually gotten so much more, so many more DNA samples that they're actually 200 to 300,000 backlogged samples. Wow. On television, the toxicology, toxicology results are available almost instantaneously. Um, when people find that it take, can take several months, they, they tend to be a little upset. And then it goes into showing just how rare it is to actually find good DNA evidence that'll prove anything. And, you know, so, you know, these shows, that that's how they always solve it, but they're saying, oh, that's way, way, way off. The statistic that is interesting here, um, uh, or the, the thing where they actually come in together, where the, where, the, uh, where the items are pretty close to each other, are the CSI a tight-knit group investigated? In real life, in Miami, 29 well-trained police officers in the CSI unit are a fairly cohesive unit. On CSI, officers work together to investigate crimes, dining together and discussing cases. CSI comes closest to reality. And how often do forensic experts find usable evidence at a crime scene? Real mm-hmm. life, 5 to 10% of all criminal cases involve biological evidence. <laughs> 100% of the cases in, on TV have usable evidence. 
And then, of course, you go down and they basically say the CSI personnel, their lives are near as exciting. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they, they don't do the actual rest. They don't run around like crazy. They don't get to drive Hummers. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- how big is CODIS, the DNA database? Combined DNA index system. Contained 3.3 or 3 to 3 million. 3.3 million DNA samples from convicted offenders. Total U.S. population, 312 million people on, <laughs> on CSI. So, you know, this is, this is just a great example of, you know, fact versus fiction, as, you know, the article says. Yeah, don't get too caught up in all the TV that's out there and what they're doing. And especially because... when they talk about computers. Just, just, <laughs> oh, yeah. Just look We're away. not going to get you started on that tonight, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, that could take you hours to go <laughs> over, I'm sure, if you, we let you. And half of the stuff you'd say would just be, and they did. I can't believe it. <laughs> Can you believe this? I don't believe what he did. <laughs> and the majority of the population would be listening to you like, what the hell is he talking about? They did what now? That's no, a I bad know, thing, I know, huh? I know. <laughs> All right, I won't get into it. <laughs> but whenever they say anything about computers, just smile and nod. <laughs> yep. Well, I, how much of how much of the population is actually ignorant about computers? As most much of, as they are about the forensics. World, yep. Most of the world is. Yeah. And... You know, if it sounds if it sounds sciency, people will generally accept it. I know, and that's and that's unfortunate because science is so cool, and they could really use good science in place of you know, and and it's getting better. That you know, there are organizations out there where their job is to make the science good, and I I think most of the time they don't really need to you know, <laughs> bastardize the science to make the show to make the show good. The the science that they want is out there. Well, they have to make the science exciting so people keep watching the rest of the show. Science is exciting. Well, yeah, but it depends on whether you take the time to listen to it. But are they doing are they doing science a favor when 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 they're, you know, distorting what what yes it really is? Yes and no. They're making the real science of what they are showing on TV more acceptable to I mean like for instance without the CSI shows how easy would it be for how how much better conviction rate are juries giving on DNA evidence now thanks to the CSI shows well now, okay. now if people say that we've got DNA evidence the jury's like oh cut and dried you know I, I think for the most part most people think that it, that it does help science because it does make science look more exciting and uh, so I think that, that that's generally the consensus but I think most people would still like the science to be slightly better yeah. So what next? All right. So, well, we we got, um, and unfortunately, I didn't see this earlier, but we did get a nice piece of feedback um, on iTunes. Um, and Mac, would you go ahead and read that? Yeah, absolutely. Just give me a moment to find, figure out which of the many windows I've got that in. Um, this was a piece of feedback by Felonius D. It says, content is good overall, but I have two requests. Please consider finding a room without birds in it to record it, and perhaps consider taking your retainer out or whatever it is that makes every S sound like an SH. But I have to say that I would continue to listen even if they didn't change a thing. So it was a nice piece of feedback. Yeah, and, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's helpful for us. And one, because there, there's certain things, you know, in this, there's there's certainly one thing that we can do, and we can try, and, and actually you did tonight, that we're, we're bird-free. Uh, we're not bird free, but we're bird reduced. Okay. I put I put the cloth over the babies a little early. Okay, and so that's great. So that's so that's something that we can do, and so you know that and so that that's helpful. I I haven't heard him tonight, so that's that's been nice. 
No, the S's and SH's. That's something I I, I, I try to do, but um, I've had, ever since I was a kid, it, it's been with me my whole life, I've had a speech impediment. And I, I went through years of therapy to deal with it, and once I became a teenager, I more or less got it to be second nature for the most part to control it. But... At times where I'm getting a bit excited, a bit, you know, enthused, I it's harder for me to keep that up. And so, you know, I do apologize if some people have a hard time understanding me at times. We've talked about it. I'm going to try not to be as energetic as I've been. But I, I was trying to put some energy into my stuff, into what I was doing, and to thinking yeah. that would be a good thing for the show. And it's but not it necessarily a, energy so much as the energy can still be there, but it's just slowing down. Right. The energy can and still be there. that's a hard thing for me. Once yeah. I get going, get energized, yep. it's hard me to slow down and really sure. focus on it so, so but we definitely you know, wanted thing, yeah well, I'm, I'll, I'll, i promise to try and work on that and make it so people have an easier time understanding me i I've, my whole life i've been told you know there are just people that have a hard time with it and it's you know, not something i'm doing willingly obviously and it's something i'm, I'm really not that aware of because you know i'm as i'm talking i it's hard to hear you well, and so I'll, I'll do what i can you know we all have our things that, that we work to overcome i mean for me i'm a dyslexic and, uh, you know, so the reading and stuff that I have to do to put the podcast together is, you know, can be difficult. And and so so we all have the little things that we're working at, you know, and, and the podcast actually, I think, helps us to do the to be better at some of these. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, I've managed I've taken about 43 years to pretty much completely destroy my body. And now <laughs> I'm trying to trying to live with what's left it. Um, I've managed to, I've pretty much been obese all my life, but I've managed to trip that over into early stage diabetes. Uh, I take iron pills for anemia. So I take about six pills a morning just to just keep me going essentially. Hmm. And I'm trying to drop some weight. I'm trying to make my lifestyle a lot healthier. <clears throat> I've cut out soda, which is why any articles about high fructose corn syrup will probably be originating with me. <laughs> so, so the, but you know, the, the thing that is, uh, is good about this is that this person um, gave us uh, some feedback that was very constructive that, that we could work with. And so we will try to, you know, we'll make an effort to, um, to address the things that we can. So we really appreciate that. All right. And we're glad you're listening and I'm glad you'll keep listening because, you know, that does help us want to do this. You said we were good. Tell us when we're awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, so that was, that was much appreciated. The, the feedback on that was, was, was really great. So moving on, um, Skepticamp. So Ian and I were at Skepticamp, and we um, actually we did a um, uh, we were on a podcasting panel with Brian Walsh from Rational Alchemy and Rich Orman from Dogma Free America. And so um, we're going to uh, we're going to put that in the feed. Uh, Ian, anything you want to say about Skepticamp? Uh, it was fun, actually. Um, not quite what I expected. I, well, I wasn't sure what to expect. But, you know, I was kind of picturing being kind of trapped in a room all day, listening to people go on and on. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. But we got there. Everyone was, you know, pretty social and had a good atmosphere, good feeling to everything. And the presentations were very interesting. And, you know, they kept changing. It wasn't like we just listened to the same kind of stuff over and over again. You know, the, the presentations were done by the people who were coming. It, it wasn't like, you know, planned ahead of time. A, a lot of it said, we want to do one. And they're like, okay, you can do it. So the presentations were very real in that sense. You know, it wasn't, there was only one that felt like a sales pitch. Everything else, you know, the people really have a passion for it and really were out there to, you know, be part of this community. And that, it worked really well. I was much more impressed than I thought I'd be. So, you know, I'm very glad I went. 
Yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. And, you know, it, it's nice, you know, at times to be with people that, you know, you don't have to convince that vaccinations are a good thing, you know. Right. <laughs> and that you don't have to convince them, you know, that, that, that about, you know, that faith healers are, uh, you know, that there's, you know, nothing there. I mean, it's it's, it's nice to, you know, to you know, yeah. recharge your Are batteries. Are you saying it was just a whole bunch of confirmation bias? I'm saying it was a whole bunch of confirmation <laughs> bias. <laughs> well, we're not going to deny there wasn't a level of that going on there, but... Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, yeah. I mean, But here's the thing is that, that when people presented the information, they actually had stuff to back up that, you know, what they were saying. It wasn't like they were just right. saying it. They were saying, this is what we're seeing and this is why. You know, and they put all the pieces there in front of you. And, they, and they're not professionals. They do the best they can. But certainly they gave us places to, to start with and to move forward with, you know, with certain ideas. I mean, we, we learned some good information about the secret. And uh, and you know, and of course, uh, what, what what's the name of the the calculation program? Um, Frink. 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 Yeah, that's that, yeah. excellent. I've I've got it installed on my phone. I got to figure out how to use it. So yeah, we had a good to, time. So well, certainly, tell, um, tell them about the origin of Frink. It's just too good. Well, actually, not to talk about tonight. That, I don't want to talk about it too much because um, that we um, did an interview on the Rational Alchemy podcast, Ian and I, and so that is uh, coming out. You could um, head on over to the. I don't know if it's up or not. I hadn't. I, I haven't, haven't seen it. Yet. I've, I've been checking. Doesn't Have you? Keep it up yet. So we're we're gonna wait um, because you know I I recorded that information too, but I'm gonna wait till he puts that out first, and it should have gone on. On the air Saturday right. so he's so or yeah Saturday night at 11 it should have actually been played on the radio and, and Rich, Ar- Rich Armand's the one who recorded our podcast panel for us which thank him he, yeah. he's already posted on his site but we get to post it on ours yeah so we're gonna post that too so. and then we'll probably drop the Rational Alchemy um, interview as well and so um, so we'll drop that in the feed and then and tonight we're going to um, add to this podcast the uh, podcasting panel which is about a half hour um, interview it, it was it went pretty well. Um, I moderated. We had um, Brian from here, and then we had Brian Walsh, and we had Rick Arman, and we were th- three really different podcasts with really different origins, really different methods on doing it and everything. So you know, it really came out informative for those who are interested in doing podcasts. So it wasn't so much a skeptic presentation as a podcast presentation, but you know, hopefully it, it sounded like it inspired a few to try their own. Well, great. Yeah, that would be good, so. and hopefully we'll hear about them and be able to advertise them here. And certainly if anybody's listening that was there and decides to do their own podcast, please let us know so that we can, uh, so that, you know, we can you know, give you a plug because we, we certainly want to do that and help promote other, other podcasters as well. Oh, yeah. So, all right. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and uh, play the podcasting panel. But okay. So we have Brian and Ian and I, Brian. and Brian. And this is the, uh, I imagine that they are podcasters. Yeah. I imagine that they are podcasters. Yeah. So, uh, welcome guys and uh, podcaster pack. Okay, um, I'm Ian Breezy Cannon. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Amateur Skeptics podcast. And I'm more or less moderating the panel today. Uh, I'm Brian Heineser. I'm the host of the Amateur Skeptics podcast. And I'm Brian Walsh. I do Rational Alchemy with Nigel Aves, who was supposed to be here tonight, and Jeff Wagg with J-Rep. Do you guys want another podcaster on the panel? Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah, come on, man. Come on. I wonder where we're going to find one. Huh? Yeah. And I'm reading an email. Richard, you never respond. Oh, see, I'm, I'm, I am that way. And I'm Rich Orman, and uh, I do a podcast. Okay. <laughs> Dogma-free America. Yes. We just had our 700,000th download. 
So basically, the format we're going to go with is I'm going to ask a question, we'll all answer it, then you guys can address that question particularly, you know, if you want us to expand or anything, okay? Or we can blabber on from there. Yeah. So, first thing is, why do a podcast? And how did you get started? So let's start with Brian over here. Yeah, I don't think most people are going to take the same path I did. Uh, I got into podcasting because of copious amounts of alcohol. <laughs> I drink, you know, a pretty, a pretty modest amount, and... I tend to be pretty outspoken when I drink at the bar, and one of the people I made friends with there was on the board of directors for KRFC, which is a community radio station in Fort Collins. And when I drink, I can't really be shut up. And she decided to keep egging me on, and then one night, after we closed the bar, we bring her back to my apartment, she gets me even more drunk, and dragged me into the studio, which happily is across the parking lot from my apartment, and we recorded about two and a half hours of material, 15 minutes of which was actually arable, and that became our first episode. <laughs> and it just took off from there. Yeah, I, I used to just listen to lots of podcasts. I listened to a lot of skeptical podcasts. There was a religious atheist-type podcast I used to listen to called The Infidel Guy. And I was just listening to this, and I thought, you know, I could do a lot better myself. And I just said, eh. And I bought a couple books on podcasting, and I recorded about three test episodes, and then I finally felt that I was, and they were really bad, then I finally felt that I was capable of producing a podcast and just went and did one, and I've done, I just did my 141st episode. So in my case, it was Brian's idea. <laughs> I give him all the credit. Basically, yeah. he just took us, a group of us have been doing role-playing games for like 12 years now. And, you know, while gaming, we'd sit around and just shoot the bull. And he came up with the idea of taking that and turning it into a podcast. Yeah, we were, I mean, we would sit around, we would talk about these things, and we would, but a lot of times we weren't well-sourced either. You know, we'd be, you know, trying to remember what we were saying. And by bringing it to the podcast, um, we brought, everything was well-sourced at this point, as well as we can anyway. And then we would continue our conversations that we were already having um, in this format. And, and then I thought, well... For the Amateur Skeptics Podcast, you know, we would make it so that we were, as we were learning our, our skeptical trade and, and learning these skills, that we would share that with other people. Any questions? Okay, on to the next one. You took my cheat. Okay. Um, advertising, getting word out about the podcast. And, well, how do you guys do it? Who wants to take it? You know, I, I put us on iTunes, and that's been the main thing, is putting us on iTunes is what has actually gotten us listeners. Um, I guess I, I heard recently that we're actually ranked um, somewhere up towards the top of that. I haven't looked. Um, and then I put us on Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, any place. That, and that's basically where we did it. And, that, and that's basically how, how we've advertised. Are you talking about advertising or accepting well, ads? Well, no, getting basically listeners. How, how do you go about you know, getting... I think the best way to get listeners that, that I did when I started out was to do interviews and that with people that I knew had a lot of traffic on blogs and their own podcasts, and then I knew that they would put a link up to my show and then get listeners that way. Yeah, certainly all of those things work, and uh, especially Facebook and Twitter. In fact, most of you in this room I'm probably Facebook friends with because I, I started friending people and then friending like everybody that they were friends with just to make uh, those kinds of connections. And then I just posted the podcast right into my Facebook feed. And I know a lot of people just randomly picked it up that way. 
between that and Twitter, uh, that pretty much covers it as well, just aside from word of mouth. Yeah, well, we actually have a Facebook page that I maintain, although I think there's only like 31 members right now. <laughs> but still, you know, and I think me and you are the only two that really do anything active on it. Yeah. I have two Facebook pages because I'm an idiot. <laughs> one is a corp, uh, one is a company page, and one I then I, then I thought I could do a, a fan page, but then I already had over a hundred fans on the company page, so I have two. Okay, any questions? How many hours are you doing in pre-production? You know, we don't. The, the question. <laughs> we're recording these, so I'm just going to repeat the question. The question from the tour was, "How many hours do we do in pre-productions?" Yeah, so we don't. We, in fact, we 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 I have we'll um, create a Google Doc, and we'll put links to articles and stuff that we want to talk about. And I usually try and come up with a topic, you know, that we can all have a discussion about. And uh, but I, I really don't want us to talk about it before we actually go into the podcast because what happens is is we end up we I, I should be recording if we're going to do pre production <laughs> because that's the best material so I really try so for us you know we, we don't have a scripted show I mean it's completely unscripted yeah. well let me clarify what I okay. mean by pre production. I'm talking about your research. You said you're well sourced. We each, so how much time yeah. are you? Spending? I wouldn't say well sourced. Yeah, we <laughs> each, <laughs> because, because and, the editing and the scripting yeah. is not. Um, we each kind of spend different amount. It depends on how much time we have each week in between the podcasts. Because um, those four of us are basically active all the time. And during that week, we each just—if we see an article, we snag it, put it up there. You know, we'll read the article and say, "Oh, this is perfect for the podcast." And that, you know, it, it, and hopefully everyone can get on and read that. So we probably spend an hour or so a week, you know, for ours at least. It, it, yeah, I spend a little bit more because I try and make sure that I've read every article that every, anybody's put in there um, so that I can, you know, ask questions and, and have conversations with the person who put the article into the, uh, into the notes. But with our format, it's really um, loose. You know, we all just contribute whatever we feel like. And then just talk, talk, talk when we do the podcast. I, I, I do my own research, and I have a, I use Google Reader, which is a really cool tool. And I, you just put in a bunch of uh, blogs and news sources in, and essentially whenever they come up with something new, it shows up in Google Reader. And every morning I have about 50 or 60 stories in there that I'll read over with my tea and, and cereal or what have you, and just go through them really quickly and just probably spend about a half an hour every morning and then when I decide to put together a show, it's not really on a schedule. It's just when I have enough stories that interest me, and then I'll just put it together. And, and I ha you can't really read a news story on a podcast because it's written, it's written in a totally different style. Because, you know, they'll have like a sentence, a quote, and then, you know, comma, according to so-and-so. And if I just start reading, you know, well, you know, John Smith is an idiot, Nator said, it, that, that just doesn't... <laughs> That doesn't really sound good, so I'll, I have to change stuff around. And that's actually what takes the most time: is changing the stories from something that is written for a news to be read with your eyes instead of read out loud. And then occasionally, I'll, I'll write jokes for my co-hosts, and that takes a little bit of time. <laughs> and I would agree with everything they said, but I want to expand on it a little bit. Also, part of what we're talking about here is you know people in the audience want to do their own podcast, and it's really. It, it becomes very easy, I think, because all of us here are skeptics, and we're obviously skeptical enough that, enough that we wanted to come to an event like this. So we're already, everybody in here is probably already just consuming voraciously all the skeptical content that they can find anyway. And for the research, it really becomes more an effort of remembering where you read something. 
more so than having to go seek it out, because at least in my case, I've already read it somewhere. And most of what I do is just extemporaneous, because it's just, like, like he said, with Google Reader, it's probably something I already read earlier in the week. Citing the source can be a little bit difficult at that time. I use, no. I was saying, I use Google Alerts too. If there's specific things that I'm interested in, I'll set up a Google Alert because sometimes you'll get stuff that it doesn't come up in my reader. You mentioned that you put your show on iTunes. How hard is that to do? Can anybody? Anybody can pretty much do it. Um, you do have to set up your RSS feed in a certain way, and this is the most complicated part. For, at least it was for me, and I found a widget that I plugged into Drupal that pretty much allowed me to do it. And then what it didn't cover, I used FeedBurner um, from, uh, uh, what is it? It's Google now too, and, and to, to fill out the rest of it. Once I got that done, but I used Podcast Alley to make sure that I had my RSS in all, all in order. And then I submitted that to iTunes. So after I did that, it, it just took a couple weeks for them to actually list me. Right. They well I don't yeah, I, they you know how Apple is, they have these approval processes and stuff but that nobody really understands. <laughs> the, the approval with, with iTunes that Apple does is pretty much I think to make sure that you're you meet their technical specifications. I don't think they're approving it for content because right. I don't think they listen. It is real and why should they? It, it it's really easy to set up an iTunes account, at least for me. I am I, I can use a computer and I can do things like Photoshop and I know how to use software, but for me, like the idea of coding in HTML or setting up some type of feed is a very scary proposition. So I use a service called Libsyn, which is my host, and they give me, for the amount I have, unlimited bandwidth for like 12 bucks a month. And it, you just set up the podcast and you say, I want it to go to iTunes, and it's done. And two or three days later, you have a feed. You just have to maintain your monthly subscription with them and they allow you to keep your entire archives on Libsyn and you just have unlimited downloads. If, if I had to pay ba the bandwidth on 700,000 downloads of usually average 35 megabyte files, it would be a real expensive thing on most services, but with Libsyn, it's 12 bucks a month. So it's worth it to get yeah. that. It's way worth it, you know, because the way I did it um, was far more technically challenging, but that's part of the reason that I did it that way. But Libsyn, I think, is a really, really good service. I have a question for you, too, Rich, if you don't mind a second point. You mentioned that you scripted jokes, I'm assuming, with co-hosts like Flynn. Yeah. And I'm, I really like the repartee between you two guys, and I'm wondering how much of that is scripted, or is that all spontaneous? Does well, he know what you're going to talk about? Yeah, they all know what I'm talking about. I mean, I send them all the stories I'm going to read. And most of the time, and, and for timing purposes, I want to sort of have control over when people are going to talk. Or it's not so much control over when people are going to talk as I want at least a minimum amount of comment from my co-host because I don't want it to be a monologue from me. So instead of, I could say, okay, I need you to talk now, but then I'd have to like edit that out and that's a pain. So, or I could say, what do you think about that? Ha! Huh! And I used to do that at the beginning and then I figured, that really sounds stupid. So what I started doing is I'll write out my story in black and then I'll put in red color, comment from Flynn. And that's usually what it is. So he knows to talk then. He will talk at other points in time. But, but you know, we, we often talk like it's a script anyway. I've told this story before. 
I'll go out to dinner with him when I, when when he's around, or we go out, and and some people will actually come up to us and say, "Are you like practicing for a play, or something like that?" That's just the way we talk. That's just the way we talk. So I know the way we talk, so I can actually write stuff that just sounds the way we would sound naturally. Most of it is just him talking, but there are times when I, you know, maybe he's just not going to be all that interesting. So I'll write, punch it up a little bit, and write up some stuff. So what he actually says is not scripted, but you've got. To oh, sometimes it's scripted. Sometimes what he says is scripted. Actually, I have a, a little bit of a different answer to that because I do it a little bit differently on rational alchemy. We do everything completely unscripted, and I do actually go through the editing process where. We'll make lots of really just awful jokes, and as I'm editing, I'll realize that something just didn't work and cut it out. But also, something you mentioned about how people ask you if you're uh, uh, practicing for a play. What happens to me a lot is, even though I don't script anything, I do think out loud a lot now that I'm on the radio, so I'll, I'll be walking down a street and talking to myself. Yeah. And I'm practicing something, but I, I notice a lot of people move around me. Yeah. <laughs> Much more than they ever used to. We're a phone. So Nuzor asked about uh, pre-production pre and then the mention of editing. So what about post-production? How much time... That's his job. <laughs> how much time do you yeah. spend or you spend on post-production stuff for the, any given episode? The first episode, I edited like crazy. And, it, and it's, I took three, four hours. But afterwards, I decided I wanted our podcast to sound like a conversation, and I wanted to make sure it didn't sound crypt, scripted or overly produced. And so I decided just to leave everything in. Um, if we have a technical difficulty or something like that, I'll cut that stuff out. Um, other than that, I have a script that I run that does noise cancellation and you know and um, tries to level everything out. Uh, so I run it through that, export it to an MP3, and put it up. So I don't do a lot. I try and keep it to a minimum, but it still takes... I'd say an hour. I, I plan on two hours for every hour of uh, content. I, I've gotten better at it over the past year or so. I used to go in manually and silence myself when I wasn't talking because you could hear me breathing, and I thought that sounded kind of creepy. <laughs> so yeah. So what I what I used to do is um, well, we turned it off. I could actually. I'm running. When you saw that, that that's actually what I edit on. It's called Audacity. It's a free freeware uh, software that you can use to edit sound. And what I saw so I would do is actually select the silence and then silence it so that you wouldn't hear my breathing. I, I got this new microphone and I figured out where to sit myself so you don't hear my breathing anymore. So that saves me about 20 minutes of manually going through and silencing my, my silence parts. I still have to do that usually with the other people. Sometimes... D depending on what's going on, there'll be things in the background. Sometimes, like someone else will be talking, my dog will be barking, and I just say, keep talking, keep talking, I can silence him out. Because I, I never do a podcast usually with anyone else in the room. It's just me in front of my computer, and they're all at a remote location. But you got to edit stuff out. I like to edit out uhs. If people are going uh a lot, I'll edit that out so they sound a lot more articulate than they really are. Last <laughs> night, <laughs> we had a whole joke about that on our podcast we recorded last night. We yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had the same breathing problem, and you know we, we were using headsets and stuff like that. And I finally went out and bought a condenser mic and a you know and, and but the, I spent quite a bit of money on my audio equipment and everything, so that you know I'm not breathing into the mic and I can step back from the mic when I'm not talking. And and it really for me it was a big help because I, you can't there's only so much of that heavy breathing you can get out of there. So and apparently I still do it the hard way. It takes me about four hours each time I do it, just because I listen to the whole thing and. 
<clears throat> I remove all the, again, the sharp inhales, the pops, the lip smacks, because they, they just don't sound good. Long pauses I'll get rid of. And warning if anybody here ever ends up on my podcast. When I decide what content to cut, uh, usually if somebody screws up, I cut it out, unless it's funny, then I leave it in on purpose. <laughs> so that's, if it enhances it, I leave it in. Do you have a question right there? Yeah, and you just, you're just mentioning the equipment and stuff, so what, what are the expenses for someone who doesn't the cost. Do anything? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, you said, I guess, 120 a year or so for that service. Like, what kind of investment would you need to put in? Uh, I, I would say, if you have a, a laptop, you need, you can, you, all you need is a, a microphone. A headset microphone is, is basically all you need. Uh, if you have a laptop, you can pretty much get podcasting with that. And you, Libsyn doesn't cost that much. There are other things you can do. If, if you're te real tech savvy, you can probably set it up some way for free without even worrying about it. So I, I would say, really, you can do it for essentially no cost if you have a laptop already. Yeah, I mean, you're going to want a domain or some way for people yeah. to find you. So there's some, so there's some costs there, but a lot of those, that, you know, can be relatively inexpensive. You could, if you wanted, you could host, uh, you could put all your files on archive.org for free, and then set up a website that just links you to all of those. So it could be done relatively <laughs> inexpensively. Um, I, I host all of my own files on, on Bluehost, um, and so I think that costs me 120 a year for for hosting and my domain name. And I do it. A little bit differently. Uh, like I said, I go through a community radio station. So I have actually a, a professional recording studio that I get to use with all of that equipment. Uh, obviously, I don't get paid to be on a community radio station, but there is kind of a cost for me because to do something like that, and these stations are all over the place, they require volunteer work. So I have to do, I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm so behind in it that. I do about 30 hours of volunteer work a week, you know, doing fundraisers or just office work or something like that. So that's a free way to do it, but it's still a time investment. Okay, actually, he's been raising his hand for um, a little bit. Since you're uh, working at a radio station, is your show on the air as well? Or is it the podcast? Yeah, we air first uh, over the broadcast. We give KRFC the, the first airing of it. Then two days later, because that's the next time I have an opportunity, is when I put the podcast up. And as near as I can tell, nobody actually listens live because it's at 11 p.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, the only reason I'm there is so I can produce the podcast cheaply with good equipment. Well, what's been your biggest, this is a question for everyone on the panel, what's been your biggest technical failure and how do you avoid it now? We lost a whole episode. We lost a whole episode. <laughs> I thought it was recording. Oh, I thought uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, and, yeah. The, and the way that, I mean, and here's the thing. When you start getting into this, I think every podcaster goes through a point where they get the bug, and they and they want to upgrade their audio, and that's what happened to me. And I went. I I think my audio setup now is about three hundred bucks, not including my, um, not including the computer, of course, that I'm recording on. And by and I got a mixer and everything. And so by routing everything to the mixer, I, I ended up with a better recording setup. And so now I can watch Audacity, so I know that I'm recording. <laughs> And so that that that's how we've avoided that is um, by actually watching the, the recording. Well, yeah, Skype can be a problem. Yeah, so that's Jennifer, Brian's wife. She's one of our regulars. Skype Skype is 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 like a double-edged sword because it's essential to doing a podcast. I think if you're going to have re anything remote, but it also sucks. So. Um, <laughs> There's a problem with the audio quality of it. I, I've, I've lost the podcast before. I, 
I went out and bought a mother, not a motherboard, a, a, a sound mixer with a condenser mic when I started out, and it was really great. And then I fried the mother, not the mother, but the sound mixer and the condenser mic. So I use this thing now, which is a lot better. But I, the easiest thing for me to fix was pops, and I bought a pop filter. And that, that, that was like the best possible thing I could ever do. And then, of course, you have to fight your own stupidity. Uh, for example, I deleted one of my episodes once. <laughs> Just accidentally deleted it, lost it. It was out of the recycle bin because it was on the radio station server and it doesn't get backed up. One time I was, oh, 50 minutes into an hour-long episode, and the keyboard I'm using has a hibernate button. Oh. And I slid the keyboard forward, it hit the hibernate button, and the entire recording got lost. We had to do it again. <laughs> and you mentioned Skype issues, uh, Stuart. You were on, what, like three weeks ago? We dropped, we dropped you three times? I thought it was just once. I thought it was it just once? No, we did it find Nigel the first time, but then... That's right. <laughs> you kept losing him. Yeah, but then you... you not dropping him, just not being able to find him. Yeah, you lost me because... Uh, yeah, I slammed my foot down too hard and my computer decided to restart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was very emotional about that Star Trek movie. <laughs> <laughs> which, which one? The last one. Oh, God. I'd be emotional I mean, come on, Red Matter? What the hell? <laughs> 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 You're in. All right, um, can you talk about how you find people to interview and do interviews? And you've already talked a little yeah. about setting well, up. We haven't done interviews yet. We, we've been talking about need to. Well, there are two things. One, having somebody from the JREF volunteer to be on the show helps. But really, you don't even need that because everybody who's in the skeptical community, especially the ones who are producing content, the authors, they're like us. You can't shut them up. And they want to talk. And really, all you have to do is ask. And the response generally is, wait, really? You want me to talk for an hour? Because they're used to going on to news programs and being the skeptic guy that they cut to. So they'll have the, the paranormal guy speaking for 15 minutes, and then you see Shermer saying, no. And then he <laughs> So if you tell them you want them to be on for that entire hour, they're ecstatic that somebody wants to let them talk. And after that, they really just start seeking you out as well. I, I rarely do interviews anymore because I just found it too much of a pain to ask people and then wait for responses. And I used to feel I needed an interview on every show and it was, it, frankly, it got very stressful, and that's why I quit doing it for about five months, and that was pretty much why I just couldn't stand always being on hustling to get people to come in. I mean, I've gotten some really great people to interview that I've, I've been really proud to interview them. I, I, I interviewed this guy, Lars Velks, who, uh, from Norway, who did this, uh, these cartoons of Mohammed and the whole worldwide controversy pretty much erupted after I talked to him, and I was, I was like really happy that I was sort of on the cutting edge. I felt like a real sort of journalist doing that. But it, it, is, it is a real pain, I think, to get, so I hardly ever do it. Ah, see, I, whereas I disagree completely. I, I love doing it, and that's part of the reason I do the show, is so that I can talk to the people who are like celebrities to me. I mean, for us, like Richard Dawkins is a rock star. Getting a chance to talk to him is, is fantastic, and it's really relatively easy. I sent a tweet out wondering aloud if Brian Brushwood would ever want to be on my show, and he DM'd me back saying, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just like that, I didn't even have to email do any of you use a producer? No. Mm -hmm. No. How about the, um, I, I see that on iTunes there's the explicit um, tags on and stuff like that. We definitely. Decision? Yeah, it, it, for us it was. I decided that I wasn't going to censor us. 
and that I would just call every episode explicit. And if that limited the amount of people that were going to come and listen to us, I, for us, that was okay. And we, we've never controlled our language. We talk about all sorts of taboo stuff. We go in some pretty messed up directions at times. You know, we're, we're not one bit worried about censoring ourselves. We, you know, figure go where we want to go because that, uh, that's how we are. And that's what, our podcast. That was the idea. We want this to be us doing what we do. A little more controlled, a little more educated, but still just doing the way we do it. So, yeah, we've never censored ourselves. We're definitely explicit. I censor myself and co-host. I, I keep the clean. I think I've had one episode with an explicit tag where I went and interviewed people from the Westboro Baptist Church. Well, I consider it explicit because they, they used, um, at least when I talked to them, they were using pejorative terms about homosexuals and things like that, mm. which I just, I, I'm probably not worthy of explicit, but the way I look at it is, I wouldn't want some mother in Oklahoma to come across her son listening to my show in, in her son's bedroom and complain about the language. I would rather her complain about the ideas. And if she's complaining about the ideas that I'm expressing, i got no problem with that. But I would be embarrassed if some kid was listening to the show and the mother was saying, and now he's saying, fuck! And I'm going to have to censor that out. <laughs> now well, we, won't. we won't. We won't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's your fault. And I have no control over that. So I, 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 and also I feel it probably would limit the exposure of the show to have people um, have, the, have the explicit tag on it. And again, I'm completely different because I have two different versions. The radio version has to be clean, otherwise I get fined. Which means I usually just bleep out or cut out, depending on which is funnier, whatever bit I need to. For the podcast version, there are a lot of times when I probably should have had an explicit tag, but I honestly never remember to put it on, so So, need to finish up? Do we have any final thoughts, any final remarks about podcasting? Can you, can you say what all your podcasts are again? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and you and Brian are on the same one. Oh, I was going to write it, but then I changed my mind. Uh, <laughs> Dogma Free America. Find it on iTunes pretty easily. And Rational Alchemy. I'm not going to say give a round of applause because that would be somewhat narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Ian, do you have anything else? Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, well, hopefully we're improving and we keep trying. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, type in Amateur Skeptics. You should find us. Join us there. Uh, we try to post interesting stuff when we get the chance. Oh, and we do have a voicemail line now. And unfortunately, I don't have that number right in front of me at the moment. But um, So I will uh, get that up on the site. And the, um, in the next podcast, we'll, um, we'll, we'll talk about what the phone number is. So you can call and leave us voicemail if you'd like. So, Mac, anything else? No, I'm I'm clean. All right. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. Music for this podcast was provided by OMG. For more information about OMG, go to their website at MySpace.com forward slash OMGHQ. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is released under a Creative Commons share alike no derivatives 3.0 license. We'd love to have you share our work with other people. Please do not edit or change the file.